Yeah. So why is the sky blue? And where did I come from? And why do you stay up later than I do? <laughs> According to researchers, those are three of the top 10 questions that children ask their parents. And if you are a parent, then you can probably remember hearing questions like that and trying to figure out how to respond. Curious kids ask lots and lots of different kinds of questions. In fact, in that study, researchers determined that the average curious child asks about 73 questions a day. You, yeah, some of you who have young children can believe that. That's, that's why you're so stressed out. You're trying to answer all these questions all the time. Curiosity tends to peak around age four. Four years old, that's, that's the age that most kids ask the most questions, and then it starts to taper off. And the questions might become fewer, but they're still very significant. And these researchers, they found that there's different categories of questions, and they divided up all the questions that children ask into three big categories. Some questions are social, and some are informational, and then others are operational. So a social question is really just designed for connection. Children want to know that they belong. They want to feel connected to their parents, and so they ask some questions just to have a conversation, just to be talking and feel connected. And then other questions, they need to know something. There, there's information that they lack, that they don't have, that they feel like they can get from a teacher or a parent or an adult. And then there's operational questions. And there's different kinds of operational questions. Some of that is how to do certain things. But some of that is because I want to get to do certain things. And those are the questions you have to be really careful about. Those are the questions that, you know, if you're a parent or maybe a grandparent, where kids can trap you. You know, this has happened to some of you. You know what I mean? It's like if one of your children are, are really helpful after dinner and they're cleaning everything up and, and they're just, I mean, you can't, like what's happened to them? They are so motivated and, and then they, they, they ask very innocently, is there anything else I can do? And, and you very quickly say, oh no, you, thank you. You've been so helpful this evening. Can I play video games? <laughs> like, yeah, they, they trapped you. you or, or a really young child, if they ask you, what's your favorite flavor of ice cream? Yeah, that is, that's not that innocent. That child has a good plan for your life, you know, or at least, at least for the next few minutes. The questions that we tend to ask other people, even as adults, or the questions that we encounter from other people, they tend to, they tend to have roots that go deeper. And really, if we started to try to peel back the layers to every question that we might ask or every question that we are asked, that we encounter, we can find that there are deeper, more significant concerns that give rise to all those different questions. All those different questions that, that we experience or ask, they're rooted in ultimate questions about identity and purpose and significance and security and, and our biggest hopes and our darkest fears. Every question that we ask, it, it really grows from deeper roots with questions that we carry around with us, not just when we're kids, but no matter how old we get. 
that's why I, I really want you to listen and pay attention this morning. In this series, The Way to the Cross, we're walking with Jesus. We're following Jesus in his footsteps through the final week of his life and the significant events that helped make up that final week of life. We're walking with him all the way to his cross and then on to the empty tomb at Easter. And we're gaining insights about what it looks like, what it means for us as we keep following Jesus today, as we keep walking after him and pursuing him with our, with our whole life. And today, we're walking with Jesus as he encounters three surface questions that are connected to deeper questions that every one of us ask. And we want to listen to his responses and, and how he engaged with those questions so that we can gain some insight into those, those deep, significant questions that rattle around inside of all of us, no matter no matter how old we are. So if, if you have a Bible with you or a Bible app that you can open up, you're, you're here in the room or you're watching at home in your room, would you find your way to Mark chapter 12? We're, we're tackling a big chunk of text beginning in verse 13, going all the way to the end of the chapter, where Jesus encountered these three different questions. And these questions were designed to trap him. They weren't entirely innocent. These questions came from from different leaders who were opposing Jesus and who saw him as a threat. We want to listen carefully to Jesus' responses. We're going to sample different parts of this chapter and the questions and what Jesus had to say about them. But, but what I want you to do, I'm inviting you to ask three really big questions about life and about faith and about following Jesus that are important to every one of us. And wherever you are, I want you to listen for what Jesus has to say to you. We're going to hear and listen to, to what he said back then, but Jesus is still talking to every one of us. And I want you to listen for the message that he has for you today. So uh, this first question that Jesus encountered, there were different categories of questions that he faced on this particular day as he was around the Temple Mount area. He faced a political question, a theological question, and then a biblical and very practical question. Before then, Jesus turned the tables and then he posed a significant question back to everybody who was talking to him. This first question that Jesus encountered was political, and I love it because it was about taxes. That was a concern back then, just as it is now. So uh, look at Mark chapter 12 and verse 13. Later, these leaders, they sent some Pharisees and supporters of Herod to trap Jesus into saying something for which he could be arrested. Teacher, they said, we know how honest you are. You are impartial and don't play favorites. That's what your kids say to you. You know, they, they first, they really compliment you. You teach the way of God truthfully. Now, tell us, is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or shouldn't we? Jesus saw through their hypocrisy and he said, why are you trying to trap me? Show me a Roman coin and I'll tell you. When they handed it to him, he asked, now whose picture and title are stamped on it? Caesar's, they replied. Well, 
Then Jesus said, give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar and give to God what belongs to God. His reply completely amazed them. Now, you might remember that it was Benjamin Franklin. He wrote a letter to a French colleague of his near the end of his life, and it was Ben Franklin who observed that the only two certainties in life are death and taxes. And then many years later, it was the cowboy pilot and humorist and entertainer Will Rogers who expanded on that idea. And he pointed out that the only difference between death and taxes is that death doesn't get worse every time Congress meets. <laughs> Isn't that the truth? It feels like that sometimes. I'm sorry if you work for the IRS. We love you. We really do. <laughs> it's somehow comforting to me to think about that 2,000 years ago, people were complaining about taxes. Taxes were something that was an issue back then, just like it is now. And for this crowd who was talking to Jesus and interacting with them, the issue of taxes was really complicated. It was wrapped up in politics as well as doctrine and theology and belief and religion. I want you to see a Roman coin. Jesus said, I, I want you to show me a Roman coin. And in the text, the word is denarion. He wanted a silver denarius, one of these coins, a coin just like that. These coins were minted sometime between the year 14 and 37, a long time ago, and they have survived. This was the type of coin that Jesus called for. He said, give me a denarius, and let me look and see whose picture is on that. And so somebody found a coin like this, a silver denarius. This image, this picture is Tiberius Caesar. He was the emperor during Jesus' adult life from 14 to 37. And on the, the backside, the tail side of the coin is a picture of his mother, Livia. And Livia was an important figure because she was, she was Tiberius' mother and she married Caesar Augustus, who then adopted Tiberius and named Tiberius his heir. And then he became the emperor after Augustus. And so the inscription on this coin, it's, it's hard for us to see, and it's in Latin shorthand, but it, it reads, uh, Tiberius, Tiberius Caesar, the son of the divine Augustus. And then the other side in Latin, it says Pont Pontifex Maximus, or high priest. And so the Jewish community, when they saw a coin like this, they were offended, not just because Rome had dominated them and defeated them and they were subjugated, but also because of the words on this coin. Because divinity was ascribed to Caesar Augustus, who was dead, and to Caesar's son, Tiberius. And Tiberius was called the high priest. And that was a, that was a religious affront and challenge to any follower of God, to anyone who believed and trusted in the only true living God. Jesus' response, it's really, if we had been there, it would have been really confusing. And I think it would have shaken us up a little bit because he didn't, he didn't attack these ideas about you know, the divinity of the Roman emperor, which is clearly false. Instead, he reminded his audience about their identity and about who they were and about whose they were. 
the people who were asking Jesus these questions, they, they wanted to trap him. They wanted to trick him into saying something that would turn people against him. Because people in Jerusalem, they didn't like paying this tax, a poll tax. Uh, it was their responsibility every year to pay a silver denarius to Caesar. And nobody liked that. Revolts and revolutions were started over paying this tax. In fact, around the time Jesus was born, there was a revolt over paying this particular tax. And 35 years after his death and resurrection, there was another revolt over paying the tax that lasted several years and resulted in Jerusalem and the temple being destroyed. But Jesus doesn't, he doesn't take that kind of bait. Instead, he reminds everybody about who they are and about who they belong to. He goes beneath that surface question about taxes. And Jesus is really answering a question about, who am I? Who are we? And he's arguing that we, we are God's image bearers. He looks at this coin and he says, look, I mean, you use this coin to transact business. But the coin has the face of Caesar on it. Why don't you just give back to Caesar what belongs to Caesar? Oh, but as you do that, you better return to God what belongs to God. And he uses this word icon that echoes back to the original creation story in the book of Genesis. When God formed the first people, the first man and the first woman, God said, I have made them, I've made humanity in my likeness and in my image, in my icon. When a king would, would conquer a new territory and a new land in the ancient world, the king would then set up an image. He didn't stay in that land. He'd go back home to his capital city. But he would set up some kind of statue or totem to remind everybody that he had just defeated who's really in charge here. Yeah, all of this land that you're taking care of and, and all of you people, you're mine now. This is my image. I want you to remember that. And in fact, I'm going to make money that you have to pay back to me as a reminder who's really in charge. When God brought all of life into existence, he didn't create a statue or an image. He made people. And he said, you, you people, humanity, men and women, you are my walking, living, breathing image. You are my reminder that there's a king who reigns over everything. There is incredible dignity in being image bearers of God. The reason that every life is sacred is because every life comes from God. Every life bears his image. The reason that we owe respect and courtesy and love to every other human being on this planet is because every human life on this planet equally bears the image of God. Every person that we are interacting with, they are more than just this stuff of skin and bones that doesn't last forever. Every life is carrying God's image. And every life, every human, 
has a high calling because we bear the image of the one who is above all and over all. Jesus went right to a deeper question that every one of us asks about who am I? Who, who are we? There's different ways to answer that question, and I would imagine you have different answers that come from your past experience, your life, your current circumstances, different messages that people have said to you and you've picked up over time. But the starting point to answer that question about identity, we are image bearers of God. The second question, the second question that's beneath the surface, not the surface question, but the deeper one that Jesus goes after is, why should we trust God? Why is it that we really should trust God? Every one of us asks that question at one time or another about God's trustworthiness. And it might be as we face significant questions in life or we look at the way the world works and we think this isn't right, this is messed up. Or it could be something in our own life experience that then creates a crisis for us and causes us to ask that question, is God really trustworthy? Why should we keep trusting him? Why should we trust him at all? Jesus he, he gives two answers to this question, and, and I want us to get to both of those answers. They're, it's a two-part response that's really important. A group of leaders, they came to Jesus, and they were from the sect called the Sadducees. This was a religious group uh, that came out of the priests, the priests who ran the temple operations and who had a great deal of authority in Jerusalem, the majority of them were part of this small group called the Sadducees. There was another uh, group of leaders that were called Pharisees. You might have heard their name before. These two groups were largely in opposition against one another, but they, they worked together against Jesus. The Sadducees were in some ways maybe the most conservative group in all of Israel in the first century. They only looked at the first five books of the Hebrew Bible as authoritative, the books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. The rest of it, the prophets, the Psalms, the writings, the writings of poetry, they thought maybe that could be helpful, but it wasn't authoritative to them in life. And these Sadducees, they didn't believe in a resurrection from the dead. Unlike the Pharisees who believed and taught based on the prophets, prophets like Daniel and Jeremiah, that one day life would continue beyond this life and that, that God would resurrect uh, everyone in the future. The Sadducees didn't believe that. They believed that once you died, that was it. So they came to Jesus with a question along those lines. They, they created a grim and ridiculous scenario. They said, now Jesus, see if you can answer this one. There was a woman and she married this man and the man died. And then after that, she married his brothers. He had six brothers. She married each one of them in succession and, and they, not at once, but then they all died. And every one of those seven brothers, they had been married to her in this life. So, in the resurrection, in the afterlife, who's she married to? If, if you're like these Pharisees and you think, you know, there, there's some kind of life that extends beyond this life, then who's she married to in that resurrection life? And I think they probably felt like they had Jesus. And in all the questions that Jesus receives in Mark chapter 12, this is the one that he responds to with the greatest strength. He says to these Sadducees, you don't know 
the power of God and you don't understand the scriptures. And then he continues teaching them. He says that a contract, a marriage contract, it ends with the death of those who are in that marriage contract. That's why people are free to marry after their spouse dies. But God's power and God's promise, it extends beyond death, beyond the grave, and into the next life. Marriage contracts and all of our promises, they they come to an end at one time or another, but God's promises don't work that way. They extend beyond our experience of life here on earth, and they cover life that comes next. Haven't you ever read in the books of Moses what God said about himself? He said, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. God didn't say I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, even though they had been dead a long time when he made that statement. That's because God is not the God of the dead, but he's the God of the living. And they were living, even though their life here had come to an end. And Jesus said, you have made a very serious error. A very serious error, thinking that life just ends when our life here is over. That somehow God's promise comes to an end. That somehow his power is limited by the power that we face at death. And then when Jesus was wrapping up this whole conversation in Mark chapter 12, he, he pressed his listeners with a question. In verse 36, uh, Jesus came back to everybody who was challenging him, and he had a challenge for them about the identity and the authority of Messiah who was to come. Jesus said, David himself, speaking under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, said, The Lord said to my Lord, sit in the place of honor at my right hand until I humble your enemies beneath your feet. Since David himself called Messiah my Lord, how how can the Messiah be his son? This is the second part to Jesus' answer. He's quoting from Psalm 110, a psalm of David, where David, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, looked to ahead, looked ahead to one of his descendants who would be greater than him. And David hears the voice of God the Father on the throne speaking to this descendant of his. And he says, God the Father was speaking to my Lord. Sit here on this throne until all your enemies are subjugated. So coming back to our question, why can we trust God? Why is God trustworthy? Why should we trust God? It's because God's promises are unbreakable and because Jesus is Lord. The reason that we can put all of our trust in Jesus, it's because God's promises extend even beyond this life All of our promises and contracts, they come to an end. Even the most sacred of our covenants, a marriage contract, it can be ended prematurely, it can be broken, and it always comes to an end when one spouse dies. And even though we experience all kinds of different powers in life, 
powers that cause suffering and pain and challenge, and we feel illness, and we feel fear and suffering, and the greatest power that comes against every one of us, it's ultimately death. Jesus is Lord even over that. He's the one whose authority is equated with the divine authority of God. Jesus elevated the status of who they were expecting Messiah to be when he said that God was going to share a throne with the Messiah. They were going to share an authority. And right now, we are still waiting for all of those enemies to be put under his footstool. We're still waiting for all of those different enemies that challenge the authority of Jesus, who really is Lord over all. We're waiting for them to finally, ultimately be put down. Jesus already won the victory in his cross and his resurrection, but we don't yet experience the full benefits of that victory. We're looking forward to that. But the reason that we can trust God today is because his promise is always kept in this life and in the next life. And because Jesus is the Lord over everything that challenges him and that challenges us. Now, I want to introduce the, this third question and answer, this deeper question that's beneath the surface. Who are we? We are God's image bearers. And why can we trust God? It's because his promise is unbreakable and because Jesus is Lord over all. And then this third beneath the surface question, what are we called to do? What are we called to do as Jesus followers? To lovingly return our life back to Jesus, to give it back to him. Now, eternal life, the gift of salvation is just that. It is a free gift there is nothing that we do to earn it or to hold on to it. We simply believe. We just trust in Jesus and in his work that is entirely finished for us. This is a discipleship kind of question. This is a following Jesus question. This is what Jesus calls us toward as we keep following him with our entire life to lovingly return what already belongs to Jesus. Now, the third question that Jesus was asked, it's one that we spent three weeks on in January to start this year. A scribe came to Jesus and said, hey, what is the most significant commandment, the greatest commandment that we need to pay attention to? And Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength, with everything that you are. And then there's a second law that's like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. This is what God is calling us to do. And this is so important that I'm not going to re-preach three sermons. Our time is running short. That would take way too long. But we talked about that over three weeks in January. When we receive God's love into our life, the gift of his love through Jesus, Jesus came as God's gift of love to the world. In his life, in his death, and his resurrection, we find solid footing to trust God and his character. When we put our faith in Jesus, when we receive his love, his love transforms. It begins that work of transforming our inner life so that we can return our love back to God. 
And as we align our hearts to love God, that love spreads to other people. It affects every other relationship and every other activity that we're a part of so that we love our neighbor as ourself. And as Jesus concluded all these different questions, it seems like he gathered his disciples to take advantage of a unique teaching opportunity to help them and to help us understand what this really looks like. When we are motivated by love to return our very life, to return everything that Jesus has given us back to him, Jesus was able to find someone who was demonstrating that quality. I want you to read these verses. Look at these verses with me that start near the end of Mark chapter 12. Jesus was sitting near the collection box in the temple and he watched as the crowds dropped in their money. Many rich people put in large amounts and then a poor widow came and dropped in two small coins. Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I'm telling you the truth. This poor widow has given more than all the others who are making contributions, for they gave a tiny part of their surplus. But she, poor as she is, has given everything she had to live on. Now, this Temple Mount was a beautiful place, and Jesus was in a particular courtyard called the Court of Women, And it was open uh, to the sky, and ringing this court of women, there was a porch that had colonnades and columns, a a wide portico. In fact, it's where the, the first church at Jerusalem began to meet after Jesus' death and resurrection. When they would gather together, they gathered under one of these colonnades known as Solomon's Porch or or Portico. And surrounding this whole courtyard, there were 13 collection boxes. And they, they were formed, part of each collection, collection box was formed in the shape of a golden trumpet, a long golden trumpet that had a narrow opening on the outside, and people would come and they would drop their money into that narrow opening, and then it would follow a long tube down to a secure box. And different boxes had different labels for different parts of the temple service, those offerings of money actually went to pay for sacrifices and offerings that were made in the temple. That's how the system worked in the first century, and that's why we still talk about giving money as an offering. We are, we're helping to fund the work of God and God's people in our community. And this woman, she came with two lepta, Two little copper coins. Two copper coins were nearly worthless. If you worked all day, uh, fair pay for your labor was one silver denarius. If you worked for six minutes, fair pay was two lepta, was two copper coin. And this woman, she quietly came with her copper coins and dropped them in the offering box and The text says, in our translation, it's very good, she gave everything she had to live on. A literal translation was that she, she threw all her life into that offering box. That was all she had, and she gave it all. She didn't hold anything back. And this woman still 
is an example to us of what it looks like for you and me to lovingly return our life back to Jesus. Back to the one who gave us life. Back to the one who called us to life. I, you know, I, I feel good when I give money to what God's doing at LifePoint, to our church. I, I appreciate that opportunity, and I believe in that. I've grown in generosity over the years, and I'm blessed and able to give more now than we used to give at earlier times in our life. But to be honest with you, I don't know that I've ever given like this woman. She gave everything that she had to live on. And she's my example. She's our example of what it looks like out of a heart of love. Not not motivation from guilt, not following a commandment or a legal requirement, but receiving God's good gift of grace into my life and then acknowledging that it all belongs to him anyway and giving it back. So my question for you to really consider, how how is Jesus calling you to lovingly return your life back to him? When you consider the different parts of your life, your career and your relationships with clients and customers and colleagues and your family life and your roles as a spouse, as a parent or grandparent, as a brother, as a sister, when you consider your relationship with what God is doing in our world, with our community and with LifePoint Church, how is Jesus calling you back to give everything he's given you back to him? Every question that we encounter, every question that we ask, it it has deeper roots. And Jesus is responding to three big questions that every one of us ask about identity, who we are. We're God's image bearers. Why should we trust God? It's because God always keeps his promise and Jesus is Lord over all. And as we follow Jesus with our life, what is Jesus calling us to do? What does that look like? We, we lovingly return our life back to him. Jesus, we praise you and we love you. You respond to the deep questions that... Uh, that we carry around with us all the days of our life. You are always good. And you are Lord of all. You already possess every part of our existence and our life. Would you fill us not with guilt, not with dread, not with fear, not with a a sense of duty, But would you fill us up with your love for us to such a degree that we respond with an overflowing heart of love that returns to you the very life that you have given us. You are Lord of it all. The parts we're proud of and the parts we'd rather skip over or ignore. The parts that bring us joy and the parts that have caused us pain. And Lord, all of those different parts of our lives today, together, we're offering them back to you. We owe it all to you. Your image is stamped upon us. 
we call on you to create your goodness as Lord over it all. 